0: You're listening to Big Shot Business Podcast, the what, the why, and the how of building and running a successful business on the African continent. Here's your host, Linkford Biz. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Big Shot Business Podcast. This week, I connected with Rutendo Matinjarare, a Zimbabwean activist and entrepreneur who has been a huge advocate of Zimbabweans unite against U.S. war sanctions. Let's hear what you he have to say. Today's episode is sponsored by Awesome Labs. For everything you need to build your own online store, do the smart thing. Visit beawesome.co.za. Awesome Labs, the web is chemistry. All right, Ruchinder, thank you so much for coming through to the program and welcome to Big Shot Business Podcast. It's really an honor having you and um, I'm really looking forward to everything we're going to discuss today and see how we can help entrepreneurs across the African continent. So welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for the
0: opportunity. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. I was trying to to sort of navigate away from this, but I guess um, we cannot separate the man from his work, right? Um, you've been very vocal in in politics and you have also ventured in business. So I think we're going to take that route and try to, to mix the two just to understand um, your perspective on business and politics. So, But before we get to that, actually, um, as is the culture of uh, Big Shot Business podcast, we want you to introduce yourself so that everybody that is listening can uh, um, have an idea who Rutendo is. So if you can just get into it and just introduce yourself.
1: Thank you very much. Um, my name is Rutendo Matingarare. I was raised in waterfalls I currently live in South Africa. Let's call myself um, one of the economic refugees that have come from Zimbabwe. Um, I am an entrepreneur with a marketing consultancy called Frontline Strat Marketing. And I'm also a social entrepreneur who, um, co- uh, who uh, is a director of a civil society organization that is known as Zimbabweans Unite Against US War Sanctions. Um, one of my uh, biggest agendas through this institution is to basically fight imperialism on the African continent. But before I can focus on fighting imperialism throughout the rest of Africa, I need to at least make sure that I help in uniting the Zimbabwean people, because there will be no development in Zimbabwe as long as we're fragmented. Assist in, a, in helping the Zimbabwean people to be productive once again, to stop this dependency on the West and to break these economic sanctions that are, that are on the people of Zimbabwe by encouraging production, encouraging the marketing of the country to the African diaspora, particularly wealthy Africans in America, Europe and other parts of Africa who could come into Zimbabwe to be investors, to help us with home-biased investments to take our country forward. I believe that um, Africa can produce its own goods and services, but that has to start with Africa controlling its resources processing those resources and making Africa great. And I think that this is a very doable exercise as long as we as Africans begin to gain the confidence that we can do it. And part of that needs and requires people to rebuild the psychology and the self-confidence of Africans, particularly young Africans, to remind us that we come from a great empire, the oldest civilization in the world. And so therefore we can do better than everybody else and do it ethically and in tandem with the environment and without destruction that we're seeing with Western and Eastern technology right now.
0: Oh, that's, that's great. That's, I think that's a, um, that's a message that is very relevant to Africa, especially at this time, because there are so many voices coming up and asking the question as to why we haven't um, uh, taken over industries that are mostly powered by, Raw materials or, or minerals or uh, um, goods that are coming from Africa. Why we haven't taken over those industries and started producing for ourselves? That's a very um, that's a very great message you're carrying across the continent and particularly for Zimbabwe, especially at this time. I also am Zimbabwean, and it's really um, it's really a sad thing when we look at what our our nation has become. But um, for me, it's mostly we cannot just liberate our country if we have not made efforts to liberate the, the continent because as a whole, the continent is still under some sort of neo-colonialism, if I can put it that way. And you've been vocal about that, um, especially when it comes to the sanctions that are still on Zimbabwe. Um, however, there is a, uh, it's, this, is, this is a question that has really been bothering me for a while. How relevant are those sanctions 20 years later? Are they still as effective as they were back then, or have people found jump arounds or walk arounds to continue with their lives? Are those sanctions still relevant?
1: Yes, uh, thank you for that question. Sanctions will always be relevant because they come from the very same toolbox as colonialism. And if you remember, colonialism hinged itself on controlling resources, depriving Africans from those resources, and then building Western competition or Western capacity at the expense of the Africans. And by so doing, Westerners developed capacity in industry and and, and agriculture, which then gave them dominance over Africans. And when you go back to understanding the creation of capitalism, you'll understand that capitalism was built by taking public resources from the masses, putting them into the hands a few elite people and then those elite people use these factors of production to force people to seek employment because people have got no other way of surviving but to become employees of the very same people that stole and took control of their public resources by what is called primitive accumulation and this is exactly what it is that sanctions are still doing it's the very same colonial system but on a national scale even though we've received independence, Western countries do not want us to utilize our resources and they want to force our government to give the resources of the country over to Western companies, over to Western capital, so that our people would be forced to be labor for that Western capital. So it's the very same system that we saw during slavery and colonialism that is playing itself out in a new dispensation of so-called independence of African states. And there is no way that Zimbabwe will ever develop as long as it is being incapacitated from using its resources, so long as it's not allowed to process payments through the international banking system when payments are made in U.S. dollars because they go through U.S. banks that have been prohibited from processing Zimbabwean payments. It is also impossible for Zimbabwe to develop when America has got third-party restriction use uh, agreements with third parties that use technology that is American, be it a chip that is American or software that is American, it has used restrictions that restrict countries that are under U.S. sanctions from being able to use that machinery. So a machine can be made in China, it can be made in Russia, but as long as it's got American technology, that machine might be refused, or the United States might refuse for that machine to be sold to a country like Zimbabwe. So that's why you hear a lot of times that our government officials and business people are talking about the problem of retooling Zimbabwean industry. It is difficult to get Zimbabwean uh, machines into Zimbabwe, technology into Zimbabwe because of these restrictions. You also go and find that we have lost what are called corresponding bank relationships. Every time that you need to trade internationally, you need banks in the countries that you want to trade with to undertake these payments and to transfer these monies that are needed. And so the problem right now is that a lot of these, man- a lot of these uh, banking relationships have been lost. And because these banking relationships have been lost, Zimbabwe cannot transact with countries where we do not have uh, banking relations. We cannot take loans. We cannot take debt, which is very critical in business, because a lot of those loans are going to come. Uh, a lot of banks will not lend to Zimbabwe out of fear of what are called secondary sanctions by the United States. But this is not the biggest problem with these sanctions. The biggest problem with the sanctions is Zimbabwe is not just under Congress sanctions, but they are also under EU sanctions. And they are also under a group of sanctions that are very dangerous for most countries that are called executive order sanctions by the United States government. These executive order sanctions are a threat to Zimbabwe in the aspect that 82% of all executive order sanctions that have been imposed by the United States after declaring a national emergency on a nation since the enactment of the uh, 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 um, National Emergency Act in the United States in 1979, they have all turned into wars. So 82% of those executive order sanctions since 1979 have turned into hot wars. They've turned into military wars. And a lot of these military wars have eventually destroyed the country, they've overthrown governments, and they've put in puppet governments in countries such as Iran, uh, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, Yemen, we've got wars in Syria right now. They wanted to start a war in Venezuela, but Venezuela united its people, challenged what the United States was doing by creating awareness of what the United States was trying to do. So the threat on Zimbabwe is not just economic, but it is this psychological warfare, sentiment warfare that is now causing divisions that might cause civil war that allows the United States to intervene as you saw them do in Libya and Iraq. And that is what we need to guard against. That is the threat that we need to fight against. And what is unique about Zimbabwe is this. As I'm saying to you that there have been uh, 82% of all executive orders have resulted in war. You must remember that uh, uh, the the United States has uh, pronounced three national emergencies against Zimbabwe, and therefore three executive order sanctions out of the 34 other countries that they've imposed uh, these executive orders, Zimbabwe is the only one where they've imposed it three times. That goes to show that whatever interest they've got in Zimbabwe is so critical that these executive orders had to be put on Zimbabwe three times, which means that the threat of them trying to destabilize us by war is great and probably greater than some of the countries that have already been taken to war. So that's what we need to guard against because there is no Zimbabwe if we are under attack if we're in a war
0: oh, that's really profound and insightful. Now there are I think there are so many parties that have come together and said, hey this uh, this. Um, US sanctions on Zimbabwe should go and many were really looking forward to perhaps this election being the change that they are uh, you know they were they were waiting for. Do you think this could be it? Do you think, whoever gets the presidency this time around would look at Zimbabwe in a different way?
1: No. um, What is actually interesting is that Joe Biden, together with people like Helms and um, um, Hillary Clinton, were the sponsors of the Zidera bill. And so they were the people that instituted Zidera. And so I don't think that there's going to be an easing of sanctions. There might actually be a worsening of these sanctions. I also say to Zimbabweans that you need to understand that the United States foreign policy or the United States um, 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 economic policy and security policy is founded on maintaining white supremacy. And if you understand that uh, the sanctions that the United States put on Zimbabwe, particularly the executive order sanctions, required the uh, uh, declaration of Zimbabwe as an unusual and extraordinary threat against United States economic social, uh, 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 economic, uh, I mean, economic, uh, security, and uh, foreign policy interests. Those foreign policy interests that they feel we are threatening have not subsided. Zimbabwe continues to control its resources, and Zimbabwe is in an area that is known as the the Persian Gulf of strategic mineral resources. And as long as Zimbabwe is controlling those strategic mineral resources, and they're not being controlled by the United States and its companies, Zimbabwe will always be a threat to the United States. As long as Zimbabwe is giving the use of those resources to Zimbabweans, to the common man in Zimbabwe, as long as the gold of Zimbabwe, the chrome of Zimbabwe, the nickel of Zimbabwe is accessible to common Zimbabweans or the natives of Zimbabwe, that will always be a threat to white supremacy because they believe that only their companies, only their institutions should control these strategic mineral resources. Another issue is that Zimbabwe has not accepted to have a US base on Zimbabwean soil, and Zimbabwe being the center of Southern Africa, the center of this Persian Gulf of strategic mineral resources, it will always be seen as a threat to the United States because it is not accepting the placement of a strategic base or military interest of the United States on Zimbabwean soil or in the Southern region as a whole. Zimbabwe was also a threat because if you remember back in the days, Zimbabwe went into Mozambique to fight RINAMO, which was being financed by the CIA together with the South African uh, military or the apartheid government military. This was very important And a problem to the West, because they were fighting imperialism, which was being bastioned by the South African apartheid government. So by fighting the apartheid government, by defeating Rinamo, which led to the defeat of the apartheid government, Zimbabwe had fought imperialism and had fought against American interests in the region. They went to Congo, they did the same. In the Congo War, uh, Congo had been designated by the UN to be destabilized by rwanda after being destabilized by rwanda and uganda who were being financed by the west then congo would be divided into five different nations by zimbabwe angola and namibia going there which with libya sudan and chad they stopped this plan of dividing congo into five states they forced the rwandans to uh, to, to 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 retreat which led to the sun city accord that was reached in south africa so all those things are threats to American uh, uh, foreign policy interests and America's quest to control resources in the Southern African region. And Zimbabwe posed, posed that threat. And if sanctions are removed, chances are Zimbabwe will still pose the same threat. Hence, they will not remove these sanctions because Zimbabwe is challenging white supremacy and American domination of resources and the financial system.
0: Oh, that's- That's very interesting. It does seem like the country is at war with the United States there. And I think generally across the continent, we are still at war. We have not really uh, moved out into actual liberation. I remember some years back, the uh, Namibian first lady was saying, yeah, we could have gained our independence, but uh, has colonialism stopped by, by the looks of it? And from what you're saying, it seems like it hasn't stopped. Now, if we can transition a little bit from, I understand that politics affects um, business at a major scale, right? I do understand that, but I want us to be a bit more specific because I think um, over the past 20 years since Zimbabwe has been under the um, uh, the US imposed elect, I mean, uh, sanctions, People have managed to do things. They have managed to, 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 to get some business going. But I want to know if maybe you have some insight or you have some knowledge of it on the ground. What is it like when somebody is trying
1: to start a business in Zim? Um, I will be honest with you. I'm not too aware of the challenges that are faced in Zim because I'm based in South Africa. Uh-huh. But the fact that I'm based in South Africa is indicative of the fact that it was very difficult for me to establish business in Zimbabwe. And one of the major reasons that it's difficult to, to establish a business in Zimbabwe is because Zimbabwe is made up of cartels. It is made up of um, uh, groups of people that give each other business. So it is a monopolistic scenario or a monopolist economy in which the former owners of capital, which are white, And then a black elite that came about with the empowerment that government gave to politically connected people tends to create an exclusionary environment from the critical sectors of business. So if you wanted to go into mining, it's not as easy as just applying for a mining license and then going mining, because you can get a mining license, you can go and mine in Zimbabwe, but you might find your mind being usurped by politically connected people, and you lose that mine. You might find yourself not being able to secure your mine appropriately, because you might not be given the license to have security guards that are armed to protect your property. All these things make it difficult for people that are not politically connected, people that have not accumulated capital to make business or do business in Zimbabwe. So one of the biggest problems we've made in Zimbabwe is that we've recreated the colonial system by transferring the power or capital from not only white people, but from white people to black people to create a new cabal of uh, 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 capitalists who exclude other people that include white capitalists and black capitalists who are working together to exclude other people from competing in the economy. This is also one of the biggest problems that we see when we're fighting sanctions, that there are people within the Zimbabwean system itself, politically connected people, business people in the system who do not want sanctions to go away because they fear that sanctions going away will bring in competition, open up the economy to players from other parts of the world. And there are actually people in Zimbabwe that are making so much money from the monopoly and the cartels that have been created that they do not want competition. Now, I understand that logic, but where these Zimbabwean people make a mistake is that they fail to understand that these sanctions are not just there to impede Zimbabwe's progress, they have actually been placed to remove the political party that gave Zimbabweans the tools of the economy or factors of production. And that removal of that government means war, it means destabilization, which will mean every Zimbabwean, particularly those controlling the capital, those with these monopolies will be the biggest losers. And when they lose, the resources of Zimbabwe will be taken away from them and given to American companies, Western companies, and the people that were being used to destabilize Zimbabwe from inside. We've seen this in Libya. Many Libyans were wealthy, many Libyans were in power, have lost. So we want to say and reach out to Zimbabwean people to say, we've got to start understanding a common national interest. We've got to open the economy for everybody to play, because when other people are excluded. This is how you see some of those people, some of those people partnering with foreigners, partnering with enemies of the state because they feel excluded from national resources that have been privatized by certain individuals. So if we want business to become friendly for Zimbabwe, we need to open up opportunity for every Zimbabwe. And we need to ensure that every Zimbabwean is reorientated, retrained to understand the national interest before they can get access to these resources. The reason I say that is that there are many people who have been empowered by the Zimbabwean government who have gone back and betrayed the Zimbabwean government. They are the biggest externalizers in the country. They are the ones sabotaging the currency. These people were empowered by black empowerment, but today they've become the sabotages of the Zimbabwean economy with enemies of the Zimbabwean state and the capital that the Zimbabwean state was trying to ensure does not continue to have a stronghold on the Zimbabwean economy. Another thing that is lacking in Zimbabwe is that Zimbabweans respect the arts and the sciences, but they have got no respect for the arts and the humanities. And part of what you're seeing in Zimbabwe, the fragmentation of the nation, This nation that lacks creativity on how it is that it can beat these sanctions is the absence of people with arts and humanities. The reason why we are not a united nation is because we lack communication, social engineering, and people who can teach citizens of Zimbabwe how to build a society that benefits them instead of benefiting other people who are outside the system. That is the absence of humanities, it is the absence of arts, and it is the absence of artists in the system and a total focus on scientists who tend to look at things in what they call an objective manner, but without understanding that there is a subjective, spiritual and emotional aspect in building a society.
0: Technically, you're saying that Zimbabwe's solution lies with the philosophers. Is that what you're saying?
1: saying the zimbabwe solution lies in a combination of the philosophers together with the scientists scientists alone cannot build a society because they do not have the glue they do not have the glue to bring the society together and so you need artists to bring in the glue that brings society together you need artists to bring in the creativity that is actually then going to catalyze and unlock something that is currently locked in in the sciences that stops the Zimbabweans from being able to innovate, create, and be able to, 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 to expand and grow in the way that we would had we been having the triple helix of everything coming together.
0: Mm, I get that. Um, earlier on, you mentioned that um, one of the challenges that the sanctions have um, uh, brought upon Zimbabwe is the effect that companies cannot retool and I think my question on that has always been it's been twenty years in twenty years I'm sure we'd have been able to know how to make the 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 either the the, the parts that we need for whatever machinery that we would need it for, and over that period we would have actually become probably experts because look at any industry anybody with twenty years of experience in doing something is considered an expert right well if they've been doing it good but I think over those 20 years, we would have actually gotten to a point where we don't need to go buy a chip from the United States. We can have a chip made in Chinoy or somewhere like that. Or we can have whatever other technologies that we wanted made within the country. What do you think has stopped us from
1: doing that? that? That's a very good and interesting point. Um, But unfortunately, with everything in life, you've got to learn and grow up the experience curve to be able to do it better and to be able to start producing results and innovating. That's point number one. So Zimbabweans would not be able to create chips, they would not be able to create machines until and unless they've had the opportunity to learn, reverse engineer, uh, uh, trial and error, until they get it right. And that takes a lot of resources. That takes a lot of investment. And so with an issue where you've got a country that is under sanctions, number one, you've got a country in which, like I said, the humanities are absent to build a national uh, focus, to build a national uh, interest. It becomes very difficult for you to be able to have the investment into trial and error in a nation where everybody's individualistic and trying to make money as quickly as possible. And Zimbabwe is that nation where, because of the science focus that we have, people have looked for the path of least resistance in order to progress themselves as individuals without thinking of the long-term focus of the nation. So you will get to see that Zimbabweans will want a job as quickly as possible to get a salary rather than creating their own business. they would prefer to get an employer or uh, someone to employ them, pay them a salary, than for them to use the land, or for them to look for resources and prosper themselves that way. That is the path of least resistance. And that's the scientific methodology of getting to that point. And what we need is is, is an artistic focus on social engineering the people to understand that. They need to create a commonwealth in which they have to suffer They have to put on overalls to create an economy that will not pay them today, that will not pay individuals, but will eventually grow to pay everybody and benefit everybody in the long run. It might not even benefit the generations that are having to slog it off now, but it will benefit future generations. That's now a philosophical outlook. That's an ideological outlook that requires a an artistic and philosophical focus to get people to stop looking for the path of least resistance and individual benefit. And it is that socialization, that uh, uh, social evolution of a higher level where people stop looking at individual benefit to a group benefit, a commonwealth benefit that will then build a better nation that sometimes those people who are building it will not enjoy today. To create that focus in our people will require an arts focus, a philosophical focus that currently is absent in Zimbabwe. Another issue is that we need Zimbabweans. Right now, I always say to Zimbabweans, they are the biggest savers outside their country in Africa. No other African country has got more savings than Zimbabwe in the tax havens of this world and countries that are non-tax havens. So we look at money that is in tax havens. Zimbabwe comes after Kenya in Africa as the biggest saver, with more than 65% of our GDP sitting in tax havens. When we go outside the tax havens, we look at South Africa, uh, England, America, Canada, and Australia, Zimbabweans then overtake Kenya to to be the biggest savers outside their own country. That is an advantage to a certain extent, because that money is currently not being affected by sanctions. The value is not being depreciated by the economic uh, 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 Turmoil that is caused by sanctions. So it is hedged where it is. But that money is not being employed into developing capacity in Zimbabwe, into controlling resources in Zimbabwe, and into processing resources, which is what you're saying. So we need those conditions to be built first for our country to start saying, we've got the capital. We've got the human skills. We've got the people who work in Google and some of the biggest American tech companies. We now need those skills, those funds, and those resources to be brought back home so we can create our own industry. We also need a commitment from the business community. Companies like Econet, companies that have established themselves into billion-dollar empires need to look at reinvesting in Zimbabwe starting research and development facilities where we begin to manufacture our own things. So I read an article yesterday that says Econet is saying cell phones are too expensive in Zimbabwe because of duty. And I'm thinking, why can't Econet start a research and development center in Zimbabwe where we can start to learn how to make our own cell phones with the huge resources that they've made in Zimbabwe, the huge capital that they've made in Zimbabwe. They can employ people from Japan, China, all across the world, bring them into Zimbabwe. We've got such a beautiful country. We can build beautiful accommodation for these foreigners and expatriates to come in and then give us some of their skill, skills transfer. And that's how we'll then begin to learn how to create new technologies. We give them KPIs that say, when you come from France into into Zimbabwe, you're going to be well-paid, but by the end of your tenure of three years, Zimbabweans must be able to manufacture a cell phone, a chip, or whatever it is. But we do not have that kind of thinking in Zimbabwe because we've got a false philosophy of least resistance. It's easier to import. But in the long run, importing destroys an economy. And Zimbabweans have not learned in the 40 years that we've had that all Zimbabwean savings are outside the country, while the country itself cannot hold up a banking system because we keep externalizing and taking from the commonwealth. So we need that convergence of sciences, philosophy, and ideology to help us to understand that there has to be a sacrifice to create a long-term commonwealth that will benefit us in the long run and benefit everybody to make a richer nation that will make even those who are rich today, richer tomorrow.
0: All right, I get that, I get that. from 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 what you're describing um uh, you know having having to to uh, start producing for ourselves in a way that will enrich everyone, I've been asking that question for for quite some time now, and um I think it was when we we're recording around episode three or so I was talking to David Machavela, and one of the one of the questions he raised. Because this is not a problem that is only for Zimbabwe, it's a it's a problem across Africa. Countries are hemorrhaging skills; the entire continent is hemorrhaging skills, and countries like China, you know, Britain, the United States, Canada, Australia—they are all welcoming these skilled Africans that are leaving their homes for greater pastures. So, I've asked this question for a very long time: What does it? take for us to be able to bring those people. And as, as I was saying, when I was talking to, to, to David, he asked me a very interesting question that I think I have not found an answer for, but I'm hoping maybe you might have an answer for it. He asked um, someone that is, let's say in the, in the United States, their life is good, they have almost everything that they need or they have everything they need. Why should they be bothered with the problems of the collective?
1: Yeah, well, the, 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 there's a number of answers to the question that you ask. First of all, every, a person in the United States does not necessarily have everything that they require. And I know this from traveling to the United States. I know this from having relatives in the United States. A lot of my relatives that are in the United States right now have got health issues. Health issues such as cancer, diabetes, high blood pressure. That is caused by the food that the Americans are feeding their people that are genetically modified, that are laced with chemicals, foods that are based on trying to make a profit and a quick buck for American companies, but not really created to be health for the people. This is done intentionally by the US government that seeks to make sure that its people are reliant on on what we call chronic medication. 54% of Americans are using chronic medication because of the food that the United States feeds its people. This then drives their $2.8 trillion to $3 trillion medical industry that happens to be the biggest killer of Americans where it kills 700,000 Americans every single year because of uh, 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 diabetes, uh, heart disease, cancer, and uh, 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 medical accidents or medical uh, related accidents, which are the biggest killer. So this benefits the capitalist system in which capital owners make money at the expense of everybody else. That cost on health, that cost that causes a lot of Americans to be obese. And a lot of Zimbabweans who are living in America are now obese. and for these health issues that require them to have a chronic medication are all reasons why people should come back home. When you go to America, I can't eat in America because the food is terrible. And so I can't wait to come back home to eat proper food. Those are other advantages, health issues the benefit of eating good food and healthy food are all examples of why we should say to Zimbabweans, you need to think about coming back home. But more critically, Zimbabwe and Africa are the countries that have made the richest people in America, like the Rothschild family and the Rockefeller family rich, because they control the mines, they control the resources in Zimbabwe. So we need to remind Africans to stop thinking of the small picture and look at the big picture, that if the West are coming to Africa to be rich, if the richest people in the world are coming to Africa to own mines and to own the wealth of Africa, why is it that we need to go to the United States to go and live a life of being paid a salary, driving a car, but not really creating wealth while also being plagued by these health issues that I'm telling you about? So we need to change the mindset of Zimbabweans, the mindset of Africans, and we need to teach them that the wealth is in Africa, but what is needed to unlock that wealth is capital and investment which would come in the form of home-biased investment. We need to also teach them that they need to promote Zimbabwe and promote people investing in Zimbabwe so that we can unlock this value and it can start to enrich everybody else. And we need to deny the West access to these resources so that they buy from us finished goods instead of them buying our resources at a cheap price and then selling us back fixed goods at 20, 30, 100 times the price of the resources that they got here. So it's going to take social engineering, it's going to take the education of the African mind, and it's going to take a reorientation of the African to understand that there is more opportunity in Zimbabwe than there is in the UK. And I'll give you a perfect example why I am saying this and why I'm right. You look at somebody like um, uh, uh, Kuda Musasiwa. Kuda used to be in the UK, he used to live there, but he left the UK didn't do well in the UK, came back home, got land, began to farm, and boom, he creates Fresh in a Box. He's making money with Fresh in a Box. He's now even earning money in pounds, money in US dollars from a business that he started from the resources of the farm. There are many other people that have left the diaspora to come back home to farm or mine and have become multimillionaires, yet they were not multimillionaires when they were slaving in the United Kingdom, Europe or the United States. These are the opportunities we have. So this migration is not necessarily a bad thing for Africa. Because if Africans migrate, they're going to learn new ways, new techniques, new technologies, new skills. If we can incentivize them to bring those skills back home, together with their financial investment, to reinvest in Zimbabwe, and start to make sure that Zimbabwe is not just a producer of resources, but it is now becoming a processor of resources, a processor of its agricultural produce because of these skills that have come from NASA, Google, Facebook, and all these Western companies, then we can begin to take our country forward.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. That's very interesting and quite insightful. It's, uh, it almost sounds like a dream, you know, but I know it's something that is very possible because it's also something that I've been pursuing on my side. It's been it's it's been something that has been bending on my heart as well. Um, how to bring back the skills that we have uh, exported to so many countries, and you just mentioned there one of the things I've also been looking at, which is incentivizing the return. The question I've heard on that is, with which money? Because um, if currently the 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 economies in Africa are not even able to sustain themselves without foreign interference, with which money can we incentivize the return of our brothers and sisters in the diaspora?
1: Well, first of all, my answer to you is that 65% of the world's gold came from Africa. So all the gold that is in the world, all the gold that has ever been accumulated in the world came from Africa. And that's just a conservative estimate. Uh, 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 South Africa alone is said to have contributed over 54 per, uh, 54% of that gold. The point I'm trying to make to you is that Africa is the one that has the money. Gold is actually money. Resources are actually money. Diamonds are actually money. So we have that money in Africa. That's first and foremost. And I'm going to come back to that point. Secondly, Africans must be taught in the same way that they were taught back in the days that a, a family of poor people would go and farm to send one child or two children to school, hoping that after 16 years, those children would graduate to get a good job in order to come back and lift everybody else from the village up. It means that Africans understand the incentive of future benefit. And now what we need to do to Africans is that we need to stop them thinking that it's all about schooling a child so that when a child gets educated, they get a good job from somebody else. We now need to start making Africans understand that no, a job can give you income, it can give you survival, but it doesn't create wealth. We must now teach Africans that the wealth is actually in that which your employer has always been fighting to control. That which the Americans are sanctioning us so that they can control. That which white farmers who lost their land 20 years ago are still staying in Zimbabwe, fighting to get back. That is what Zimbabweans now need to look long-term at. The land, the resources, that's where the wealth is. That's what made the white farmers rich. That's what made the white business people rich. That's what is making Americans rich enough that their corporations are pushing their government to maintain sanctions on Zimbabwe to ensure that Zimbabwean resources are given back to American and Western entrepreneurs. So we need to now reorientate our people to say the wealth is actually the resources. The wealth is actually the land. The wealth is actually cows, goats, chickens, and seeds in the ground. It is not in a salary the fact that many Zimbabweans have left to go and be nurses and caregivers in Europe, to be waiters in places like South Africa, means that our people don't yet understand what wealth is. Because while we are doing this in other countries, other people that we went to school with are left in Zimbabwe and they are becoming U.S. dollar millionaires by simple things like mining, simple things like tobacco farming, like maize farming, like horticulture. We now need to reorientate our people to that. And the same way we got our people in 1980 to believe that education was the most important thing so that they can get a job, we must re-engineer their minds to say, control of resources, starting a business off those resources and using those resources to export To create new goods and services is how you become a multimillionaire to create wealth for generations to come and to be able to ensure that you become a solution to the problems you're complaining about. You create the jobs, you create the foreign currency and you create the savings that our banks don't have to make sure that Zimbabwe starts to grow again. So it's all about reorientating people, re-educating the Zimbabwean mind. Our parents were educated enough by the system Which was a colonial system that spend as much money as you can to educate your child and once your child is educated they'll take care of you we now need to reverse that template because it was a colonial template and we now need to create what is called a middle income mentality that creates entrepreneurs it creates solution givers it creates innovators it creates people who create solutions to problems and that's how they begin to make money as owners and controllers of the economy, as entrepreneurs, as business people, rather than as employees. The employee mentality is a third world mentality. We need to move ourselves into a second world and first world mentality that begins to get our people productive, to create generational wealth, and to create solutions to lift their economy to the next level and 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 let me let, let me let me let me put it this way while we are at it that's, that's when i'm cool. talking like this someone would think i'm talking like this because i am a successful business person no i'm not a successful business person but i have a knack and an understanding of social engineering a society to be able to create that which we want so that in its own respect i should actually have a consultancy in the African continent, just to teach our people to create a society that will create the success and create the institutions and businesses that we require to go forward. But the problem in Africa is that we do not respect the people that architect the, the, the ideology and the people that construct the common interest that allows our people to start building a puzzle of common interest and common wealth that will benefit us in the long term. We only think that the people who do are the ones that matter. But in Zimbabwe, we've got some doers, but everybody is doing what they want without doing together to build one thing. And that's why Zimbabwe is struggling. It's not because it doesn't have money, doesn't have opportunity, but everybody's selfishly working towards their own interests without building a collective interest that will then make us all rich in the long term and give us the higher standard of living.
0: Have you heard about Big Shot Business Network? It's the place to be for African entrepreneurs,
1: business owners, and professionals just
0: like you. Join millions of fellow entrepreneurs today by visiting likeabigshot.com. Big Shot Business Network. Connect. Share. Grow. I was talking to um, a lady in Kenya some time back and she was telling me, um, as we uh, sort of transition into business, uh, she was telling me that one of the challenges that she had noticed that most entrepreneurs there were having is that they were never building products for for the continent. They were building their, con- their products for the international market, which made them big losers at home and because they had no... Um, firm footing at home. They couldn't even capture the international market that they were building for. Now, in a case like that, do you think that type of orientation that you're referring to can change the mindset of the entrepreneur on the African continent to start focusing on building products that can benefit the continent and not just build for international markets? Do you think that orientation could help in that?
1: It could help. And also the orientation of teaching Africans that the world is not really about buying products, particularly the developed and most more, more sophisticated Western world. They want to buy products that will be able to assist them. So they want to buy products that will create jobs for them. They want, to create, they want to buy products that will be able to make sure that they can get a pension tomorrow. And they've been socialized by their countries to understand that you must buy local because local is what equals your jobs. And that's why you see in America, they make some of the worst cars in the world, but Americans buy American. The the fastest selling car in uh, the world is the Ford F-150. And people in America buy the F-150 because they're supporting their economy. So you can create brilliant products in Africa and they can be rejected by the, uh, by the international community and the Western world and Eastern world in particular. They will create policies that will make it difficult for your products to penetrate their market. They will create barriers to entry that will make it not feasible for your product to come into their country, not because your product is inferior, not because they are better products, but because they are preserving their economy. So when you manufacture things in Africa for the benefit of the West. You're actually playing yourself at a disadvantage. There are products right now that you can manufacture deliberately for the West, but you must also make sure that you've got an African base. So, for instance, I've been saying to Zimbabweans that there is a trend right now that people are understanding a correlation between the food and their health. They understand that the food that most Western countries are producing is toxic and inimical to health. So they are looking for organic food. And right now in Europe, it's difficult to grow organic food because most of their soils have been tainted by chemicals. So that means that Africa has a a latent opportunity right now to produce organic food that people want to take for its taste, but because it can also be medicine for the body and health. So we as Africans can target organic food production for that purpose. But before we ensure that our organic food is going overseas, we must also make sure that Africans are eating that organic food so that we stop spending less on Western medicines by making sure that our people are healthy from organic food on the continent. We must make sure that our our organic food is going to the biggest markets that don't have organic food on the African continent, like South Africa, Egypt, and some of the countries that are so sophisticated that have started copying Western tendencies. And only after we've created that base on the African continent can we then take our product overseas, knowing fully well that once you begin to grow too quickly, the West use sanctions to control your growth, to control your independence, to control your, your, your competitiveness. So you must always know that you must have a home base to go back to when the West starts using their unfair tactics to cripple you so that they continue their domination. And we must understand that the West will never stop destroying our businesses because the world is a competition for resources. And the country or continent with the biggest resources is Africa. And they've actually created something called the Morgenthau plan after the Second World War to make sure that Africa continues to be de-industrialized so that they have capital and power to continue to control our industry. And you must remember the last thing is that consumption is a weapon. It's a weapon of war. And is a weapon that the United States has used to dominate the entire world economy. And we as Africans have got to start understanding that we must stop consuming Western goods because they are a weapon that takes money out of our economies. But we must also then know that Westerners, the Americans in particular, also do not allow themselves to become dependent on consuming goods from other countries. So we must not depend on them as our only primary markets. That's why you see China is struggling right now to face the United States, because whenever it suits the United States, they use their economy, stop buying from China, and that affects the Chinese economy. They destroyed the Japanese economy that way, where their pension funds were the ones that were leveraging the Japanese manufacturing. But when Japan became too powerful and began to export more than the United States, they pulled out their pension funds, and they sabotaged that Japanese economy, which eventually led the Americans to control a lot of Japanese companies. So we need to know this competition, economic warfare, and understand that economic warfare should not, should stop us from trying to depend on the enemy for our sustenance.
0: that's very powerful. You just reminded me of, um, um, uh, I believe it was two episodes back, I was talking about the um, US foreign policy on Africa from the fact that Donald Trump never visited the continent when he was, well, during his office, um, and he might have sent representatives, but there, were, there was really not much interest he was showing in the development of Africa, which to me was uh, an advantage because it gives African entrepreneurs the opportunity to then start making solutions for the continent. But in 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 most cases, right? There are so many countries that have programs that are dependent on aid from the United States. Uh, I know of hospitals that are dependent on that aid. I know of schools that are dependent on that aid. And um, a case example um, is um, the the textile industry in Lesotho, uh, to be more specific. uh, Their biggest market is the United States. And with, uh, the U.S. policy really not quite certain as to where they stand as to uh, Africa's growth. Uh, people were becoming a bit concerned that such industries could fail, right? And I was still, I was still getting this, uh, you know, excitement that okay, let it be. Then we, we we can create an actual market on the continent for that textile, right? Uh, that in. Um, That industry, I believe um, from the statistics I saw, it employs about 46,000 people, which is not much, but for 46,000 people to lose their jobs, I have to say that mountain that will be climbing, there is a bit tricky in that the outcry that accompanies that and still trying to tell people, no, we have a vision. We are trying to make Africa um, um, an independent uh, continent. Do you think that's a fight that people would finally understand at, at any point, considering the risk of losing the jobs that they currently have, considering the risk of um, some medical pro- or, I mean, um, some health programs failing, uh, considering the risk that some economies may fail if we totally cut off our dependencies? Do you think it could be something the crowd or the, the, the masses on the African continent can swallow if we totally say, okay, Co- the continent has to be free?
1: Well, the, the, the masses always follow policy. The masses always follow what it is that they are educated to believe and to think. Uh, the problem that we currently have on the African continent is that the people that are responsible for framing the, the, the psychology or the psyche of our people are the Western countries. They're the ones that create the impression that Africans cannot survive without this aid, Africans cannot survive without a lot of these that are slave jobs. And I say that a country like Zimbabwe, where 70% of our people live in the rural areas, a country like Zimbabwe, where that that 70% used to sit at 90% during the uh, uh, colonial period, 90% of our people were, were stranded in reserves. There were policies to keep them in those reserves, but those are the very same people that kept Zimbabwe afloat. They are the ones that financed and supported the liberation struggle. They're the ones that fed the liberation fighters from barren reserves. It's clear from that example that our people can survive without a dependency on a Western economy or Western aid because they did it. For them to receive independence, they were totally self-reliant because the Western colonial system was not there to prop up our people. It was giving them the worst jobs, it was not paying them well, it was exploiting them, but our country survived because of the rural economy. And right now, Zimbabwe under sanctions is surviving because of the rural economy and our biggest export, which is the human capital of Zimbabwe. So if we begin to understand this equation, we need to start making sure that we bring the most out of these two sectors, our rural economy and our diaspora funds that are being repatriated back home. But we know that the diaspora funds that are being repatriated are just but a fraction of the 30 billion U.S. dollars that Zimbabweans are working for outside Zimbabwe every single year. So what our government needs to do is we need to look at ways to couple the opportunity that is within our rural economy, the resources, the minerals, uh, the wildlife, the tourism, and find a way to make sure that these factors of production become attractive for Zimbabwean capital to come back and invest back at home. Because that capital from Zimbabwe can make more money leveraging resources in the minerals, leveraging agricultural output, and leveraging the tourism opportunities that are available in our rural community, much more than Zimbabwe needs donor funds. Because the donor funds come with conditions that seek to take those resources and opportunities in the rural areas away from the Zimbabwean people to Americans, and hence they're giving you those donations. The donation always comes like a worm on a hook that seeks to take more than it gives. And if we, once we know that, then we need to stop you taking the worm and start really feeding ourselves with what we as a people can provide ourselves through these diaspora funds. So if I was the government right now, I would really go on an intensive campaign to number one, educate the Zimbabwean people about the fact that the Zimbabwean people have the capacity to rebuild the Zimbabwean economy. They've got the investment required for the Zimbabwean economy. Like I'm saying, we're looking at over 65% of our national GDP in savings that are sitting outside Zimbabwe. And there's more to that, that are sitting outside Zimbabwe just in tax havens. There's even more that's sitting in non-tax havens. So we've got so much capital that is sitting out there that if targeted appropriately with the right vehicles into the Zimbabwean economy, it can leverage Zimbabwe. And then we must also educate those people in Zimbabwe that manage the institutions that should manage this capital that we are talking about. Those people must understand that it is their duty to ensure that people's funds when invested in Zimbabwe shall be taken care of, shall not be exploited and taken away by corruption for those people to have confidence to come back in Zimbabwe. And those people must be taught that if you make the environment conducive for capital to come back, that capital will come back and create jobs. It'll create savings. It'll make our banks start functioning again. It will allow you to take debt and buy a car or a house on debt. And that is what you should encourage. We must make Zimbabweans understand that Zimbabwe, for Zimbabwe to function, it is not the government only that needs to change the way it does things. The banking system is a private sector. And that banking system has been the biggest uh, 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 depleter of Zimbabwe's savings because of the greed of banking uh, moguls and banking uh, shareholders. We need to defeat that culture. And that's not a government responsibility. It is the responsibility of private citizens like you and me. We must make businesses understand that if shareholders buy shares in your organization, so that your organization can grow. It's your responsibility to grow that investment and add value for the shareholders and not enrich yourself and have holiday homes and have all these scams that we had with EMG, Wingirai at at Intermarket, and all these other scams that we had in the past. We must build the common interest. And if we build the common interest, we will build a country that will make us all rich. And I'll tell you a story to confirm what I'm saying. In 1997, Zimbabwe had the second biggest stock exchange in Africa. It was also the most profitable stock exchange in Africa. It was more profitable than the Johannesburg stock exchange in terms of returns. And so that stock exchange is how BEE, or what we call uh, 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 Black Empowerment in Zimbabwe, began. The wealth that you see a lot of these Black people were empowered was able to be created by this flourishing economy that was created by a black government in 1997. And so we want to bring Zimbabwe back to those days. But to do that means that those people who agreed to steal from that bubbling economy, then must give back, reinvest, and make sure we recreate that economy and this time for the benefit of everybody, was that sustainable economy, if it had been kept the way it was, if it had grown the way it was doing, today most Zimbabweans would be better off than they are. Even with sanctions, we had kept that economy flowing. People had not taken those monies out of Zimbabwe into tax havens and into foreign countries. Zimbabwe would be a very big economy in Africa today. And we can go back there as long as we stop thinking about ourselves and start thinking about a collective that will produce more to grieve us even more wealth. Mm.
0: I'm, still, I'm still stuck on how um, we're going to convince those people to, to reinvest. Um, as you say, it was greed that got them where they are. Now, having to give back would require them to you know, to sort of move away from what natural what naturally made them wealthy, and try and be the opposite, be a bit more liberal, and be a bit more altruistic, if I can put it that way. Uh, is it something we can actually achieve? Are we able to convince those people, or should we start looking at other means of getting our economy back uh, um, back on track? And those that have funds outside the country and those that have kept the country where it is for the past 20 years, to some extent, I feel like we should just let them be and focus on building from, from ground up. Do you think it's something we can do?
1: So uh, the, the past, the past uh, uh, 10 minutes or so were spent in me trying to explain to you that the ideology is how we start by incentivizing people giving them the information and the knowledge about how they create real wealth, instead of this salary-based type of uh, crumbs falling off the table, existence that many people are comfortable with. But let me also say this to you. Uh, Many people that left Zimbabwe, after looting Zimbabwe and externalizing lots of money, failed to succeed outside Zimbabwe. You've got people like James Makamba, who is now having to come back to Zimbabwe now with his tail between his legs because he couldn't make it outside Zimbabwe. He couldn't make it in South Africa. Zimbabwe made him and he was a multimillionaire from Zimbabwe. And when he left Zimbabwe, he lost all he had. There are a number of other business people that have become very poor after leaving Zimbabwe and going into the diaspora. Wingirai is not doing as well as he used to do when he was in Zimbabwe. So that alone is incentive to say billionaires and multi-millionaires made by Zimbabwe are likely never to make it anywhere else but to come back to Zimbabwe. You look at people like Strive. Strive is outside Zimbabwe, but his biggest operation and his biggest cash earner is still a Zimbabwean business. That in itself says that Zimbabwe is where the wealth is. That in itself, the fact that you've still got people like Kudinaris uh, of INSCO, they're in Zimbabwe. They could go anywhere else in the world, but they choose to stay in Zimbabwe. Rottenback chooses to stay in Zimbabwe. That's because the country is very wealthy. But very few people know that this country is very wealthy. And creating knowledge of just how wealthy this country is and I keep emphasizing this point, creating the knowledge to our people that the reason why white farmers are obsessed about Zimbabweans, white South Africans are obsessed about Zimbabweans, they are always talking about Zimbabwe in their media is because it's a wealthy country. So let black Zimbabweans be educated of this fact so that they understand that you need to come home. Because if Zimbabwe comes right and sanctions fall away, The opportunity in Zimbabwe is going to be stolen by these very same white South Africans, the American uh, business people that continue to insist that the government must put sanctions to force our government to give our resources back to them. Zimbabweans must know that those resources that the world is competing for is what we should be worried about. Those resources that the world is competing for, we must partner with people outside Zimbabwe, Nigerians, uh, 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 Egyptians, Kenyans, African-Americans, a very rich sector of people, we must promote the opportunity that's in Zimbabwe, partner them, they bring in the capital, I bring in the opportunity, we create partnerships that make us billionaires. Every single hip-hop artist, every single celebrity in America and sports person should be marketed to, should receive information that they can turn their paper money into gold. They can turn their paper money into diamonds. They can turn their paper money into real wealth that cannot be taken away from them like what happened with Michael Jackson's wealth that just blew away. What happened with Bill Cosby's wealth that just got taken when he got put into prison. We need to teach our brothers and sisters all across the, 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 the international community that the money that they make in white countries can be lost at any time. Zimbabweans must be told that if you are a Zimbabwean in a foreign country like the United Kingdom, any day the United Kingdom can come up with nationalist policies that could decide to say we don't want foreigners anymore. The British people can wake up beating all black people and telling them to go back home. Zimbabweans will be forced to leave without taking their monies and savings out of the banks. They also need to know that when there's an economic downturn and some of the companies and banks in these countries are suffering and they need bail-ins, Governments are not going to bail them in anymore. They're going to do what is called, they're not going to bail them out anymore. They're going to do what are called bail-ins. The savings that are in these banks will target the foreigners, will target the richest people, take their savings, invest them into their banks, and we can lose all our capital and savings that I've been bragging about. So Zimbabweans must be educated about this, to incentivize them to say, the only place where your wealth is safe is at home. If the banking system is not yet stable, at least invest in assets, invest in mines, invest in mining rights, invest in land, invest in uh, energy production, invest in infrastructure, invest in buildings, invest in business premises. That will safeguard your wealth rather than leaving it in foreign countries where when things get hard, and it's going to get hard with COVID not going away, It's going to get hard with machines taking over people's jobs. AI is going to make people lose jobs. All those people who are right now relying on these Western economies will eventually find themselves in a destitute position. So they need to do something now to ensure that they don't lose their savings in survival in the near future. And the future I'm talking about is no longer. Two, three years from today, people will not be able to survive in Europe. And the only place people will be able to survive is Africa. And that means that even people in the Western communities will be running to Africa. And that's if we don't even start fighting to be in Africa because Africa will be the only place where those people that don't have opportunity because of AI, a lack of resources in the West, will need to come and survive in Africa. So I think these are the incentives we need to give our people. Uh, It cannot be given and expecting people to get it on their own. We have to educate, we have to create documentaries we have to create seminars. We have to go out there, have debates, create write-ups and write books about the future that is coming that only Africa is the only place that is probably going to survive what is coming. That's why the, that's why the Chinese are coming here. That's why the Europeans also are fighting to create policies that make Africa conducive for them. It is because the future is an African future and not a Western future. Mm. So that's the incentive that our people must look at. That's, that's amazing. We,
0: we have exceeded the time that we had allocated for this and we didn't even get to talk about your business. Uh, um, it's, it's, it's really an intriguing discussion we've heard and quite a lot of value that you've provided and quite a lot of information that I believe many Africans need to hear. But uh, we're kind of running out of time I think we need to set up another time and uh, get into mostly your business and what you do and and all of those things. But I think for now, for now we have to call it here. And um, I think this this episode is going to be one of the most informative episodes, especially for Zimbabweans. Uh, and I know the liberation of Zimbabwe is the liberation of the continent. And that's a very good thing. And I really appreciate all the information that you have provided for us today. And I think uh, we have to keep it here. We have to set up another time so we can get a bit in detail um, uh, about, about business and some of the other things that you do before, before we go, there's, there's one thing I wanted to confirm. Do you have a prediction on the American election? Because I think it's, do, I have? do you have a prediction on who's going to take the American election?
1: Which election? The, 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 the American election. Yes. Um, I, think, I think Biden might just take it, but um, it's not going to make a difference for us. Right. And if, let's say, Biden
0: takes it, there are quite a number of things that we're still uh, hoping might go away, right? One of those things is um, um, the, what is it called now? Africa Growth and Opportunity Act. I'm hoping they don't uh, renew that thing. I'm hoping they don't renew it. I know there are jobs that will be lost, but I'm hoping they don't renew it so that African entrepreneurs can start taking those opportunities, right? right. Um, I think it's something that that we're yet to see. We'll see how the American election goes, but to me, I don't think it's going to make much of a difference. And um, I think once once the dust settles, people can refocus on the future of Africa. And I like what you said, that um, the future is African. And I believe we need to start preparing our businesses, preparing our our fellow citizens, our our brothers and sisters to have that mind of understanding that uh, the future is African and we need to start rebuilding our countries and rebuilding um, the continent so it becomes prosperous and the people in it but anyways, Ritendo, I really appreciate your time. I thank you so much for, for coming through today and all the information you've given us, loads of information. It's going to be quite an intriguing episode. So thank you so much for that,
1: brother. Thank you so much for your time. And um, like, like you said now, uh, the problem with Algoa is that it comes with terms and conditions that are more suitable for the Americans than Africa. And so as Africans, we need to ask ourselves, can we continue to take the hook with the worm? Or do we need to start thinking about what it is that the worm and the hook are supposed to catch? Because that is where the value is. Right. So let's, let's look at the value that the hook and the worm are supposed to catch much more than thinking that the hook and the worm are our are value because they're not. A the fish always loses Indeed. in uh, eating the worm on the hook. Indeed. And that's what Goa, a lot of deals that the Americans and everybody give us. It's uh, deals that we don't want. And lastly, uh, South Africa has been forced to Algoa, for them to continue to be a part of Algoa, they were asked to start buying American chickens. And I read an interesting article, I read an interesting article two days ago that the FDA has just won the right from American courts to sell uh, uh, chickens that are diseased. And I would just like you to guess, where do you think those chickens are going to be sold? they will definitely be and tell me why, because that, the, the, the moment you eat stuff that's not good for you, if the effects of that goes on your health, you're still going to be reliant on their pharmaceuticals to to heal yourself again, and that's an added plus-plus yeah. for them, and there's no for us.
0: Mm, create a problem and the solution and benefit from both. <laughs> and that's the that's, that's the conflict of interest I've been, I've been talking about for the past uh, couple of months, that we need to look at the people that are giving us aid and the people that are coming in trying to help. What's their conflict of interest? If the problem that we have helps them and the solution that they are bringing also helps them, then that conflict of interest is just something we shouldn't be part of. Yeah.
1: Which, which brings us to the biggest conflict of interest right now, where we are made to, fo- to, to sign a lot of these deals, WTO, uh, trade agreements, and things like Alboa that is forcing uh, American biotech foods and seeds onto the African continent, genetically modified foods that don't reproduce, that are going to cause us to be in a food dependency. Mm -hmm. That is the biggest threat to Africa together with these pharmaceutical vaccines Mm -hmm. and goods and services that are provided by companies that are called eugenics companies in America. Companies created specifically by white families that wanted to eliminate other races for the benefit of whiteness. Our governments by now, our governments by now should be aware of these dangers. Mm -hmm. Our governments next year will be facing a forced vaccination, COVID vaccination being imposed on the world by these Western companies. I hope they're going to be smart enough and researched enough to ensure that our people are not exposed to these vaccines and chemicals that have not had benefit for us as Africans. And I even sometimes think that some of these vaccines have influenced the way we think. Because when you hear how they work, when you hear the metals that are in there, and metals that are causing degenerative diseases, I actually think that these things are inimical to our thinking, and sometimes we don't think the way we are supposed to to compete in this world. Indeed, indeed,
0: indeed. this discussion will never end. There's so much to talk about, and there's so much that we still need to uncover and uh, spread across the continent. But I think for now, for now, if we could just. Um, Cut it for now, and then, we um, hope you enjoyed this week's episode and, remember and, and to subscribe to review and Thank share you, this podcast Thank you for be time. sure to join millions of fellow entrepreneurs at big shot business network for this week's show notes visit like slash podcast until next week this has been the big shot